What we're going to do on Sundays throughout the month of October is study what is traditionally called the five solas. Now, if you've heard that expression before, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never heard that expression before, then you obviously have no idea what, what at all the word means. Sola is just the Latin expression for alone. And there's five alones traditionally that come out of the Reformation. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of detail on that um, as we move into the sermon today, what we mean by the Reformation, what we mean by the five solas. And obviously the first thing that needs to be said when we say there are five alones is, well, how can there be five alones? Because if you had something that was alone, how many would you have? (laughs) Just one. So in what possible sense do we mean five alones? Well, basically there are five theological questions that could be asked. And each of these questions has one answer. There's only one thing that answers that question. And so today the question is, where does religiously, in terms of faith and belief, where does our authority come from? What has the authority to speak into my life? What has God's level of authority? And the answer is Scripture alone. So if you want to, the fancy Latin term is sola scriptura. Just Scripture alone. So as we talk about the Reformation, um, obviously if you think about the Reformation, if you've been in school, you had to study the Reformation. The Reformation is a large chunk of history. I'm going to give you the small, simple version of the Reformation, and we're going to walk from there and talk about these five solas. So we're in a Baptist church. We're not in a Catholic church. That means something happened. For most of the Western history of Christianity, we were what we could retrospectively call the Catholic Church. So I'm going to give it to you in a history of Bible translation. So when the New Testament was written, does anybody know what the language of the world was at the time the New Testament was written? It was Greek. The Old Testament had been written in what language? Heard somebody. Hebrew. But by the time we get to the New Testament, that very famous historical character named Alexander the Great had conquered the world. He'd Hellenized everything, which is the fancy word for saying he Greeked everything, and he made the language of commerce, the language of trade, the language of academic writing, all became Greek. So the Old Testament got translated into Greek, which makes sense. The New Testament was written in Greek. Well, when you fast forward a little bit in church history, Roman Empire, of course, is dominating the world. And what does the Roman Empire speak as its primary religion? Latin. Very good. So what do you think happens to the Bible? It's translated into Latin. We call this the Vulgate, which means vulgar. And so if you just you know, want to sound smart, you can say the, the Latin Vulgate has vulgar Latin. And vulgar, of course, just means normal people language. And so I don't know, you know, you can work out the linguistics of why we use that word differently today. But vulgar Latin. And so just it was written in a way specifically that normal people who spoke and read Latin could either read or at least listen to it and know what it was saying. Now, unfortunately, the church goes through a millennia, a thousand-year period of time where the Bible is not translated. You go through Western Europe, you go a thousand years forward after the Latin Vulgate, and you have people speaking new languages like English. I know some of you may think English is as old as creation. It is not. It is a relatively young language um, from a global perspective, but English, Spanish, French, German... And the Bible was not translated into these languages, and so the church goes through a series, uh, a period, sometimes this is called the Dark Ages, where the, 
The authority of the church is consolidated to an elite group. And even from a Catholic perspective, there's some very bad popes, some very bad leadership that comes into play. And you can't question the doctrine of the church because no one can read the book to disagree with it. The Reformation is chiefly about a return to Scripture. Because of the Muslim invasion of the Byzantine Empire and its overthrow, Greek manuscripts flood into Europe. It's kind of this revival happens because people are studying the Bible again for the first time in its original language, which causes people to translate the Bible. And so Martin Luther, and of course he's the one known famously for the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. He's really just one player in a very large story. But one of the most important things he does is he translates the Bible into German, the normal language of the people he's ministering to. Of course, shortly after that, it goes into French. And then for our purposes and our history, it's translated into English. And people can read the Bible again. It causes a renewed interest in Scripture. And when that happens, you have a church system that's developed over a millennia that didn't necessarily use the Bible as its source of authority. So there's this renewed interest then in what the Bible has to say. And there's five doctrinal statements that they didn't just come up with five at the time. We're looking back over history and saying, these are the five basic ideas that fueled what was happening in the Protestant Reformation. And number one is sola scriptura. The Bible alone must be our source of authority. Next was faith alone. By faith only are we saved by grace alone, only by God's grace, not by our merit, not by our good deeds, not by our race, our heritage, only by God's favor are we saved through Christ alone and nothing else can possibly under the sun save us. And all of this happens to the glory of God alone. So we're going to walk through these five things. So today we're going to focus in on sola scriptura or scripture alone as having authority. So let's dive in. We're going to jump into several different scriptures this morning. Start in 2 Timothy. You might need your table of contents today if you're not familiar with all of these locations. 2 Timothy chapter 3, very famous verse, maybe not as famous as John 3.16, but 2 Timothy 3.16 is also a very famous verse. We're going to dive in here and look at the basic idea of what we mean to say that Scripture alone has authority. So 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, all Scripture, now quick nerdy side note, The word there, scripture, in the Greek is where we get our word graph. And literally graph, you think calligraphy, words like that, or you you make a graph. What are you doing when you make a graph? All right, it's got to be on paper. Or technically, the word's old enough, it would have been on rock. Because you're scratching it in. That's what the word means. So all scripture literally refers to writing, Not, not spoken word but writing specifically. So Paul says, all Scripture. Now, when Paul says all Scripture, just to be fair, what is he talking about? The Old Testament. This is the 39 books in your Old Testament. The writings are the Tanakh, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. That's what the Tanakh is, the Hebrew Bible. He's technically talking about that. Now, we see later Paul's writings are called Scripture within the New Testament by Peter, and we would ultimately include the New Testament canon in this statement, but it says all Scripture, the written form, specifically, the written form of Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, my translation says breathed out by God. 
You may have, anybody have the word inspired? Inspired is common or God breathed? Mine technically says some form of that. Paul made up a word here. The apostle, he's writing in Greek, and he just took the word breath and the word God, and he combined them into one word and said, all scripture is God breathed. Now, the apostle Paul is being very clever in his wording. So it's scripture, it's it's writing, I don't have my pen, it's, it's written down, all scripture is God breathed. So there's two elements here. Who's doing the physical writing? You humans are. There's people writing these words, not prophets, that have been moved by God to speak, to write, but its source is it's out of the mouth of God. God speaks. And so the authority that God has translates then into the authority that his word has because he said it. So let's just start with this. The first blank there is God has absolute authority over the world. Now we can demonstrate this throughout scriptures. It's assumed often in scriptures, but let's just think about the creation story. God has so much authority that he can command nothing and the nothing obeys. You follow what I'm saying? So he can say, let there be light. And was there light before he said that? No. So light didn't even exist. And all of a sudden, when God speaks, the thing that didn't exist has to submit to the authority of the one speaking. Let that blow your mind for just a second. That's how much authority God, our creator God has. Let there be light. Boom. The whole creation narrative, it's all spoken word. God doesn't have to come down and physically put things together. He has so much authority, he doesn't have to touch it at all. Now, he, when he does touch it, it shows the significance. He doesn't have to. It's part of his character. But he can speak it into existence. Now, second level then is, if that's the level of authority God has, then anything he says has what level of authority? that exact same level of authority. Anything that is his word has this same level of authority. Now, you're in Second uh, Timothy. Flip a few pages forward. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. So it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Of course, that's a reference to the Old Testament. We've got Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Ezekiel. We've got a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. And they're speaking. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So scripture culminates, it climaxes with Jesus the son coming And perfectly, he's the exact representation of God in human form, represents to us the authority of Scripture, the authority of God in Scripture. So think about the way Jesus shows up. Is Jesus human? Yes. How human is Jesus? Completely. He's fully, perfectly, absolutely a human being. But that's not all he is. What else is Jesus? He's God. How much is he God? Fully, completely, totally, absolutely God. Well, the word is very similar to this. It's, in a sense, it's the authority of God incarnated or 
inscriptured, written down on paper. God has given to us his teaching, his word, his authority. That's the basic idea. And so, why does scripture stand alone in terms of authority? Because it stands alone in terms of being literally God-breathed. There's no other thing that works this way. And so, next, I want to walk through scripture and show you a few examples of things that could be held up to the same level of Scripture. Now, we hold up several things to the level of Scripture sometimes. If we're not careful, we'll do all of these. And the first thing we're going to talk about is tradition, church tradition in particular. And the Jews had the similar thing. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 15. I want you to see how Jesus handles the scenario of tradition. So there's lots of religious tradition that is exciting, it's good, it's fun, but it's not the same as Scripture. It's not the same as this God-breathed material. And so let me give you an example. This is Matthew 15. We'll read a few verses here, uh, beginning, at the, beginning of the chapter. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, so do you remember the Pharisees? What are they known for? They follow the law. They love the Bible, and they love their tradition that explains the Bible. Now, what if their tradition might contradict something that's in the Bible? Which one are they going to fall to? They're going to lean on tradition. Because their tradition, in a lot of ways, started trumping the authority of Scripture, or at the very least, was equal to it. So they come, and they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now you may first think, well, gross. Why don't they wash their hands? But not the scenario. Their hands, the Pharisees' hands weren't any cleaner. It was just a ritual they went through of ceremonial cleanliness that made it feel religiously that they were cleaner and the disciples aren't doing this because it's not required. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, and if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to the Lord or given to God. He need not honor his father. So the scenario, and we don't have this exact scenario, but we come up with a religious loophole to not have to obey some direct statement of Scripture. So what do you think Jesus is going to say? Your tradition or the authority of God's word? It's really a no-brainer, isn't it? They're not on the same level. So what he says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but in their hearts they are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what's Jesus' attitude towards tradition? When you elevate it to Scripture, he condemns it. Scripture stands alone. There's no tradition elevated to the level of Scripture. Now, the problem here is we all have tradition. As a Baptist church, there's tradition. Go to a Pentecostal church, there's tradition. Go to a Methodist church, there's tradition. Go to a Presbyterian church, there's tradition. You know what kind of church you can go to that doesn't have tradition? None, exactly. That doesn't exist. There is tradition Anywhere you go, because you are not the first person, just to be clear, 
you're not the first person to read the Bible. Did you know that? And so when you read the Bible, you're coming at it with stuff that thousands of years, people have been reading this already. And some of them were smart, and some of them were moved by God, and some of them did a good job of putting it together, and we're constantly coming back to Scripture, but we also have this great cloud of witnesses, to use biblical terminology, of people who have gone before us and shared with us in this labor. Now, that's useful to us, but at no point in time does any of that ever contradict Scripture or we throw it away, which is why we have to constantly, using the lingo of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, go back and be Reformed. Always take our tradition and subject it to the authority of Scripture. Are we doing this because the Bible says we should do this? Constantly, every generation, generation after generation, we're going back to the Word and saying, does this tradition match the teachings of Scripture? If it does, praise the Lord. If it doesn't, let's change it. We have to do this all the time. Because you know what happens if we quit going back and we just settle on our tradition and you don't study your Bible on your own, and you just take the preacher's word for it, what do we create? We, somebody said, we create the Catholic Church. Okay, well, yeah, maybe, in a sense. Um, but yeah, that's it. we start creating a tradition that can drift wherever it wants to go. This, however, is our anchor. At no point can we go where this book does not take us. So tradition, the Bible condemns the Pharisees for elevating, elevating tradition to the level of Scripture. Now, the next one is probably more likely to happen in our own day and age. There's a lot of deism that happens in our culture that teaches exactly what we're about to contradict. So go ahead and turn to 2 Peter. And as you turn there, let me give you the scenario. So what happens in Christianity, when you take a guy like, I don't know, have you ever read or listened to the guy Jordan Peterson? Um, very interesting, kind of conservative thinker. And I've, I've actually really enjoyed reading some of his books. The guy's not on our team, but he really likes... Some of the things Christianity has brought to the table. And there's this notion in the secular world, and it kind of creeps into Christianity, that the Bible just kind of got there early, but there's a lot of this truth, a lot of these teachings that we could have arrived at on our own. You just think hard enough, you, you, walk, you put, put two and two together. Um, if you were just the smartest man on the planet and made sense of everything around you, then this is what you would come up with Anyway, it's the idea that just general revelation, looking at creation, looking at common grace, just common sense, common intellect, the the culmination of human wisdom and reason, if we bring all of this together, we would eventually have created this anyway. Well, that's saying human reason and Scripture are actually on the same level. This is not what the Scripture teaches And it's certainly not what was happening in the Reformation. In the Reformation, they were fighting against that very idea because the Renaissance was happening at the same time. But I want you to see Peter making a similar statement here. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, it says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he saying the source is? Jesus, the revelation of God himself. We would never have come up with this on our own. No matter how smart we get, we would not 
have come up with this. Smartest man who ever lived in the Old Testament is said to be who? That's the longest living. The smartest, Solomon. All right, Solomon is the wisest one who ever lived. Now, let's think about Solomon's life. Do you know Solomon's story? He's got all this wisdom, but what's he do to the God's kingdom? He destroys it. He, and he starts coming up with all these political moves, a lot of pragmatic thinking. He, he's spreading out the kingdom bigger than it's ever been, a lot of political success, all at the sacrifice of religious purity before the Lord. He invites sacrilegious worship. He invites idolatry into the kingdom so badly that his son, within the first week of his reign, the empire has gotten so destabilized religiously that the empire splits. As human wisdom, even when it's the most greatest wisdom given by God that ever existed, it can't produce anything compared to what the scriptures produce because God's wisdom and man's wisdom never get to operate in the same tier. And it's not even one tier different. Do you understand? What's the difference between God's wisdom and ours? There's an infinite expanse. His wisdom is beyond anything we could possibly understand. Galatians 1.12, if you want to highlight that one later, says the same thing Paul's saying, I didn't come up with this. I didn't think this through. I didn't work this out theologically. Jesus told me. That's where it comes from, direct revelation. So the Bible contains teaching that we could never have arrived at on our own. It stands alone. Next, so stay in Second Peter. Let's finish this thought. And this is probably one of the biggest within Christian circles that we have to deal with in our own day. So Second Peter, verse 17, we'll just continue the paragraph. It says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father. So he received, we're talking about Jesus. So Peter is speaking. You know who Peter is, right? This is the Peter who walked on water. This is the Peter who denied Jesus later. The Peter who's the rock of the church um, in Matthew 16. This is that Peter. He's a big deal Peter. He's in the inner circle Peter. Peter, James, and John Peter. Y'all with me? He's, from a human perspective, we might say he's a big deal. He's one of the top three disciples. And he was an eyewitness. So, So when he received honor and glory, that is, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When did Jesus, or when did God the Father say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? All right, one time at his baptism, and one other time, happens twice. The Mount of Transfiguration. All right, so Peter was not present at the baptism as far as we know. Peter did not hear that one. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration is kind of a mystery. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and in some bizarre way, he transfigures, and that's just us using a big fancy term to describe what we don't understand. Something happened, and all of a sudden, his godness in some way was visible. What is that like? I have no idea. Peter didn't either. He saw it and was got a little dumb in his lingo. And so Peter makes this statement. He, he, James, and John got to go up with Jesus when this happened. When Jesus gets to the top of the mountain and he's transfigured, Moses and Elijah show up. You know who those characters are? Moses, you know, the Torah, Elijah, most, perhaps most famous prophet. These two guys are up there. Now, how Peter knew who they were, I don't know if they exchanged names or had some sort of spiritual name tag. I have no idea, but Peter knows 
This is Moses, and this is Elijah, and Jesus in the middle, and Peter opens his mouth and says, oh, 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 can I build a tabernacle for each of you? Now, Peter didn't realize it at the moment, but he had just committed theological heresy and the presence of God. What did he do wrong by saying he wanted to build a tabernacle for each of them? He put them on the same level. (laughs) No. (laughs) Big mistake. Moses and Elijah, big deal? Certainly. But when you put Jesus on the scale, where do Moses and Elijah show up? They don't. Like they, they're not enough to show up on the radar if it's tuned to recognize that Jesus is there. So while Peter's saying this, these three people, let me build each of you a tabernacle, he doesn't finish what he's saying. God the Father, God the Father interrupts him. Have you ever had someone cut you off in the middle of a sentence? <laughs> Can you imagine God the Father cutting you off in the middle of your thought flow and say, he says, no, 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 no. This is my son. And then in actual version in Matthew's gospel says, listen to him. Which is an amazing statement. Listen to him as opposed to Moses or Elijah. You know, authors of scripture. Listen to Jesus. He's the one. This is my beloved son. Verse 18, he says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Can you imagine this was a significant moment for Peter? I mean, he probably never forgot this. I mean, he probably just mentally remembers every moment because he, he falls down like he's dead when he does. I mean, God the Father cut him off. When God says, nope, wrong, I can't imagine the fear that that causes. And I love Jesus' response. So after, after the statement happens, Jesus doesn't tell him to get up. He walks over to him and touches him on the shoulder. Like, it's okay, Peter. <laughs> Comfort. I mean, it's just a beautiful story. It meant a lot to Peter. But this is what he has to say, verse 19. We have something more sure. Hear that. Peter heard God the Father speak audibly. Got to see Jesus the Son transfigured visibly. Experienced God spatially. And he's saying, like what I'm saying is Peter has an experience with God that trumps anything you can describe to me in this room. Peter got to see and experience something up there in Moses' levels of clarity. Of maybe even Peter's face glowed when he came down the mountain. I have no idea. This is a very bold theophany, if you want a fancy word, or manifestation of God and his presence. Yet Peter says, we've got something more sure. And what is it? It's the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter has a better experience with God than anybody in the room. And he would still say, if he takes his experience before God and the scriptures... What does Peter say? This one's better. This one is sovereign. This one is supreme. It is more sure than even what happened to Peter on the mountain. That should blow your mind. But there's nothing in all of creation that compares to the revealed word of God. So no human experience is as trustworthy as the prophetic word. Now, one more, and we have a tendency in our culture to do this one too. 
And that is to elevate, you know, sometimes critiquing Protestant Christians, somebody will say, we don't believe in um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. As though we're, you know, taking the Holy Spirit and demoting Him because we're elevating the Word of God. Because couldn't the Spirit come and give us something new or change something? And so I'll just say this very clearly, if in your system of thought, the Holy Spirit has the authority to come and change the Word of God, then you don't believe in the same God that I do. Because my God, the God of the Bible, is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't go, oops, you know what? We did say it that way. We've thought about it again, and we've changed our mind. I do that all the time. God doesn't do that. God got it right the first time. Furthermore, Jesus, saying that the Holy Spirit would come, this is what he says about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14. He will glorify me. And verse before that, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would not say anything further than what Jesus said. So, there's no such thing as a comparison between the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. Because how much of the Scriptures are connected to the Holy Spirit? What did we just read in Peter? Every word came from Him. So does the Holy Spirit have more authority than Scripture? That's actually a stupid question. Do I have more authority than me? That's what we're asking. It's his word. It doesn't have more or less authority than him. It's his word. So we can't put the spirit on a higher elevation. The scripture is from him. This is what we mean when we say sola scriptura. So it's greater than tradition. It's greater than human wisdom. It's greater than our experience. And it's synonymous with the spirit because the spirit is God and it's his authority that the scripture contains and it came through the inspiration of the Spirit. So this is the doctrine of sola scriptura. So let me talk about the application of this. It's really not very complicated, but this is the basic bare bones application of sola scriptura. So studying the Bible then is an act of obedience. This is the authority of God. If God has spoken with authority through the scriptures, and you submit yourself to the authority of God, what does that mean you should do to the Scriptures? You should humble yourself before them and study this book. Now, it's easy to say that, but let's say the reverse. So neglecting the Bible is an act of disobedience. Well, I don't, you know, God may have authority, but I don't care what he says. He's my Savior. I just don't care what he wants me to do. You can't say that. You can't say that and have a submission to God as God. This is his word. It's his authority. He has spoken. We are obligated then to listen. We are obligated to care. We are obligated to know what he says. Now, we have the tendency because we, we like our individual freedom. We like who we are. When someone fails to speak clearly enough or something, we want to make sure we recognize that the problem isn't isn't me, it's the source, 
didn't speak clearly enough, and sometimes we're audacious enough to apply this to God. Well, if God really wanted me to do this right, he'd have said it more clearly. That's a level of arrogance that you can't fathom. But she's saying, God, you, you know, you didn't do a good job making this clear. And he's going to say, I gave you 66 books. And you didn't study them. That's on you. It's your fault. Don't neglect the word. Don't put yourself in some haughty position where your reason or your responsibility or your own thought process, your own experience is equal to or, God forbid, greater than the scriptures. No, instead we humble ourselves below them and submit ourselves to them. Let me give you four spiritual disciplines for the word. Four spiritual disciplines for the word. Number one, um, the one we're celebrating every October is reading. I can't stress enough how important reading is. But let me clarify. What you should not be doing with your Bible exclusively is one chapter a day, and you're calling that reading. That's not what we mean when we say reading. Have you ever watched the movie in five-minute increments? You wouldn't do that on purpose. And if you did, and you watched it in five-minute increments, and even worse, you didn't watch the five-minute increments in order, how well would you understand the story? All right, just to be clear, you wouldn't, okay? You, you would not. I watched the Shawshank Redemption that way for like 20 years of my life. I caught it on cable, you know, and you see bits of it here and there, and then finally I decided I'm going to buy this movie and watch it from beginning to end. I learned two things. One, it's the best movie ever made. Second, there's a lot of language in that movie that cable had cut out. Wow, okay. <laughs> but you don't get the story in those short little increments. Here's what I'm encouraging you to do. In Reformation Month, it's a great time to start. Sit down and read whole chunks of the Bible at once. There's no reason you can't read all of Paul's letter to the Romans in one sitting. It's not that long. Read it in chunks. Read it in sections. Get the whole story. Sit down and read all of John's gospel at one time. Or read as much of Genesis at one time as you can. You'll see the picture in a way you've never seen it before. And I'll go as far to say you cannot study the Bible deeply unless you have read it widely. You have to have it wide before you can go deep. Because every time you read in Paul, he's referencing Abraham. He's referencing Moses. He's going back. You're spreading out your wings over the whole of Scripture in order to make sense of a small section. So read it widely. Second, study. You do need to do this. You do need to do the one chapter at a time. It's just second. Most important is you read chunks. Second, dive in and study specific things. Say, you know what, I'm going to dedicate this month to studying Ruth or to studying Galatians or to studying Ephesians. I'm going to make sense of this text. I'm going to make sense of what's going on in this passage. Take time to do that. Now, number three, and this one's way more powerful than we ever give it credit, memorize. Memorize Scripture. When you memorize Scripture, it does a work in you. It becomes part of you. And get this, you start to think God's thoughts. That's amazing if you think about it. You can sit back and quote a Scripture, particularly if you're struggling with a particular sin or some area of faithfulness. Memorize scriptures about that. And as you go through that struggle, those scriptures will jump to your mind. You'll be thinking about what God's word has to say about it. And the power of God in his word will start to mold you and shape you because you have memorized portions of God's word. Of course, we see Jesus do this in every temptation in his temptations with Satan. He quotes scripture and confrontation to everything Satan 
says. And if this is how Jesus does it, can we possibly do better? Memorize the Word. And number four, meditate on Scripture. Well, we don't do this much at all in our culture, partly because we're scared of the word meditate, because we think of these Eastern religious practices when we hear the word meditation. And to be fair, when we say the word meditate, we mean something virtually opposite of what they mean, because meditation in an Eastern sense is to empty the mind. Meditation in a Christian sense is to fill the mind with Scripture. You're taking the Bible, you're thinking about it, you're meditating on it, you're mulling over it. Now, I'm not saying you should do one of these things. I'm saying all four of these things need to be part of your regular, active practice. We need to study, we need to read, we need to memorize, we need to meditate on the Scriptures faithfully. So as we move into the end of the service this morning, what we're trying to set up is an opportunity. We've praised the name of Christ. We've extolled the gospel through worship. We have received the gospel in a tangible form through communion. We've now sat under the teaching of the word, and now we have this opportunity to respond. So one of the specific ways we have an opportunity to respond in every service is through the offering. So we're going to take up the offering now and just a moment, and we're going to, as the offering is going out, share a few other ways we respond to the Word in our church and with some other missions opportunities. So I'm going to go ahead and offer our prayer over the offering, and then the ushers will pass out the plate while I go through some other opportunities for response. So let's pray together. 